Jesus has left the church with two things. Some call it sacraments, ordinances, ceremonies, um, remembrances, observances, whatever you call them, two things that believers, that Christians do with regularity. These two things are baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. These two things Christians do with regularity. Baptism is done at the beginning of the Christian journey, and communion is ongoing, regularly participated in throughout the life of the Christian journey. And these two sacraments, these two things that Jesus has left his church with are hugely important to Christians because they take us back to what's of central importance. They take us back to Jesus. They take us back to the gospel. And so Christians love the sacraments and regularly participate in the sacraments. In fact, the definition of a church is partly the right administration and use of the sacraments. These three weeks, what we're doing is we're paying particular attention to the sacraments, specifically to baptism. We're trying to give our focus for about three weeks on the issue of Baptism. As sort of a, a way of review, we kicked this off last week, and let me remind you of some of the important things we said. We acknowledged right off the bat last week that baptism has been a very divisive issue within church history. We looked at church history and said the whole church history across the globe has been in heated, unfortunately, heated debate on this issue. Men and women have literally killed one another, shed blood, drowned one another over this issue. It's been a very divisive one. And we said that that division is not even just out there somewhere, but in our own narratives and in our own stories, in our own upbringings. We said that at a church like Seven Mile Road, where many of you who were brought up in the church come from different backgrounds, different traditions, different churches. And so you bring your own baggage into a conversation about baptism, very different practices, very different views on it. We said last week, if you remember, that while baptism is a primary, closed fist, national border, if you remember those analogies from last week, kind of issue, the practice of baptism, who gets baptized, when do they get baptized, how much water they used when they're baptized, is a secondary issue. It's an open hand issue. It's a state border, if you remember again the analogy from last week. And we said we want to be careful not to confuse the two. We do not want to elevate practice and make it a primary divisive issue. What we mean by this is that unfortunately Christians take the posture which is if you do not see baptism exactly how my tribe sees it and thinks through it and practices it, then you are of a different team, a different family, almost as if you have a different God than I do. And we say, no, there are primary things that all Christians who love Jesus center on. Is baptism important and essential? Absolutely. But have people who love Jesus, who are wiser and godlier than us, differed in how they practice it and understand it? Absolutely. And we want to major on the majors and not major on the minors. And we want to be in all things with unity. We looked last week at Acts 15 at how the early church, a young baby church plant like ours, handled theological disagreement. And in Acts 15, if you were here last week and you heard that, if not, it's available to you online. We saw how the young church in Jerusalem, there was a major theological question that came up in the life of the church. 
And there was heated, the text tells us, debates. There was dissension. There was passionate, robust dialogue. And yet, there was, at the end of Acts 15, we saw unity and joy. And the whole church was in agreement. And we said, we want to press for those same things. We, we want to have dialogue. Even debate, passionate, robust conversation. But in the end of it all, we want to have unity and joy. So then with that as review, and my prayer for you is that as our hearts, today we want to think through the two views of baptism. With humility and unity being of primary importance in the gospel, we want to think through the two views of baptism. Okay? I'm going to pray for a moment to beg the Lord to give us that unity and to give us that humility, and then we'll consider these two views together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come and we ask you to even now be with our hearts, that our postures would not be closed fists, ready to be defensive and divisive, but that we would have open hearts, that you would make us a very humble people who submit to you and submit to your word, who hold as what is primary what you have defined to be primary, and who hold as secondary what you have defined to be secondary. We pray you would give us clarity. We pray for wisdom. But above all, we know that the scriptures tell us from beginning to end, even if truth is spoken to a people, if we are blind of eyes and hard of hearts and deaf of ears and dull of minds, then your word will bounce off our heart. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would come here now and aid my mouth that it would only speak your truth and whatever is not your truth, it would not be allowed to say. And aid our ears and hearts and minds and eyes that you would open blind eyes and soften hard hearts, illuminate dull minds that we might see and hear and believe and understand. Give to this church unity purchased in Jesus Christ so that all who believe in Jesus are now sons and daughters of God and therefore necessarily brothers and sisters with one another. And I pray that that would be the framework into which we enter this conversation. Hear our prayer. Do more than I knew to ask or pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here are the two general views of baptism. You have infant baptism, or what's called paedo-baptism, and you can hear it in that word paedo, which has to do with child or children. And then you have believer baptism, or what's called by theologians credo-baptism, and you can hear it in that word credo or creed, belief. So you have infant or paedo-baptism, and you have credo or believer baptism. Okay. Now it's no secret, and I want... I want to say that clearly at Seven Mile Road that we as a church, at least in our praxis, in our practice, have leaned towards believer baptism. That's no secret. You've, you've witnessed that. Though we've had no baptisms here yet, and hopefully we'll do that in the coming weeks soon in the season of the life of the church, you do know that we have had many babies born into our community, into the life of the church, and you've noticed that none of them have been brought forward for baptism. Why is that? Okay, so what I want to do today is I want us to look at both views and then consider why we lean in the way that we do. When you get into this conversation, the easiest thing and the thing that often happens 
is for one side or another to build a straw man of the other side. Do you know what that phrase straw man means? It's, it's the idea that you erect a sort of argument that sort of misrepresents the other side so that you can easily knock it down, right? And so what both sides tend to do is they erect a straw man of the other position so that it becomes very easy to knock the other side down. What I've learned from smarter people than myself is that if you're going to engage in dialogue, even if you don't agree, you want to understand and be able to articulate the other position so well that they themselves, even if they don't agree with you, would concede that you represented them fairly. Does that make sense? That if you're going to engage in dialogue, you do not do so by building strawmen. You understand the other position so well that even they would agree with you and concede that you have represented them fairly, even if we should disagree. We need to do that today when we talk through pedo-baptism or infant baptism. Though we as a church might not necessarily land there, we will not be served by caricaturing or building a straw man of that position. Rather, we will be best served if we can thoughtfully engage it and humbly dialogue with it. Okay, so then what is the infant Baptist or paedo-Baptist argument or position? Well, right off the bat, as soon as you even begin to talk through that, there's an important distinction that we're going to have to understand and make. Right off the bat, as we're starting to talk through this, there's a, a distinction that we're going to have to make. And that is that it might appear that all churches that practice infant baptism do so with the same theology underneath. And that is simply not the case. I want you to hear that. When, when you look at it, it might seem like they baptize babies and they baptize babies and they baptize babies. So obviously they must all do it for the same reasons, with the same belief, with the same theology undergirding. That is not the case. I want you to know that there are adult baptism theologies that suggest that baptism is a part of salvation. Meaning that when you're going through the waters, therefore you are being saved. Now, we wouldn't say that and go, okay, then every church that practices believer baptism must necessarily believe that baptism is what saves you. We wouldn't lump them all together. That would not be sensible. That would not be true. That would not be fair or wise. So it is with infant baptism. Not every church that practices infant baptism does so undergirded by the same theologies. And so I want to reduce these two. And, and I know that I'm being simplistic for the sake of time. But, but I want to I basically say that there are two theologies under the umbrella of infant baptism. One, we reject. One, we differ with humbly. Okay? One, we reject. And one, we differ with humbly. One theology undergirding the practice of infant baptism across many churches, and in Q&A we can talk through this more deeply is that infant baptism is somehow tied with conversion or regeneration or salvation. And so there's a theology that says that when you baptize babies, that what is happening is that this child is being converted, is being saved, is being given the Holy Spirit, is now suddenly, automatically a Christian. There are some theologies that say that what happens is the removal of original sin. So if you, if you read through Paul's letter, you know that 
Just as Adam was sinful, so all the sons and daughters of Adam are born with sin. Ephesians 2, that we're born dead in our sin and trespasses, that we have a from birth, not a blank slate, but a black slate, a proclivity and bent away from God. And so the theology of baptismal regeneration, we'll call it, is that by baptism, the original sin is wiped away and you are cleansed and now given the Holy Spirit and made a Christian solely through the waters. Apart from faith in Christ, apart from repentance, just by the act itself, you are now made a Christian. And we want to say very clearly, there's not a single verse in all the scriptures that would agree with that, and we reject that completely. We do not equate baptism with salvation. But I want you to know that there are other paedo-baptists who baptize their babies who would join us in rejecting that position. That's important. Because they too who baptize their babies would look at them and say, that is not at all what we believe. And we join you in rejecting that as unbiblical. And so there are others, and we'll call this the Reformed Paedo-Baptist. I'm throwing a lot of big words. I apologize for that. But the Reformed Infant Baptist view, and I want to remind you, these include men like John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, J.I. Packer, John Stott, Tim Keller. As we said last week, not a bad team to be on. These men who are godlier than us, wiser than us, smarter than us, lean towards Pedo-baptism, infant baptism. And so while we may disagree with them, and you may, we want to do so thoughtfully, and we want to do so humbly. And so we want to ask, okay, then what is it that these men believed? What is it that they believed that led them to baptize babies? So what I want to do is I want to try as succinctly and yet as faithfully as possible to give you the argument for pedo-baptism. And then we'll consider together why we differ. Okay? Pedo-baptists, reformed pedo-baptists, I want you to hear right off the bat, do not see baptism as salvific. One man named Robert Rayburn, a well-known Presbyterian reformed scholar, he writes this. Just hear this quote. In baptizing infants, we are not asserting their regeneration. The administration of the sacrament of baptism to an infant does not in itself bring any guarantee of anything, certainly not salvation. And then hear this. There is no biblical teaching of infant salvation through baptism. Instead of faith, such ideas are superstition. I want you to hear that again. Here is a Reformed Paedo-Baptist who baptizes babies, and yet he is clearly saying there is no biblical teaching of infant salvation through baptism. So they reject it with us. And so if that's true, the question is, if baptism is not about regeneration, is not about automatically making the baby a Christian, then why do they do it? Why do they do it? You may disagree, but you want to do so thoughtfully and humbly. I'm going to say that 50 times, okay? Why do they do it then? To understand that, you have to understand covenants, the word covenants. Now, we have to acknowledge that that word is not one that we readily understand, certainly don't readily use, and particularly our own American culture, which leads to individualism and, and is highly individualistic, does not lend itself to understanding this word covenant. 
Even when we talk about faith, we lean towards a very individualistic way of speaking of our faith. We talk about my personal relationship with Jesus, my faith in God, my walk with the Lord. Now, while the scriptures have ample room for that kind of language, I need you to know that when you read the scriptures, when you open the Old Testament and read through the Bible, there's also a language of speaking in faith in corporate words, in communal words, in the idea that it's not just I who belong to the Lord, everything that belongs to me belongs to the Lord, including my family. That there's a sense in which this relationship with God includes not just me, but those around me, particularly my family. And so when you look through the scriptures and you consider the covenants, the relationships that God has entered into with human beings, what you'll notice over and over and over again is that these covenants are not one God with one man, but it's God with a man and his family. You'll notice wherever covenants are mentioned in the scriptures, it's not just God covenanting with one person, it's with that person and his family, particularly his offspring. I want you to hear some verses. If you look at the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis 9, is it that God comes into a singular relationship with Noah? No. Genesis 9 says this, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. Do you hear that? Noah, I am coming into covenant with you and with your offspring and all future generations after you. What about Abraham? In Genesis 17, God makes another covenant. He does so with Abraham. And is it God and Abraham? Period. No. Listen to what he says in Genesis 17. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Right? God is saying, Abraham, I'm coming into a relationship with you and your sons and your offspring after you. We could keep going. But every time God makes covenant, the offspring, the seed, is also in view. When we get to Exodus 19, when we kick back into Exodus in a few weeks and resume, you're going to see that in 19 and 24, between that section, God enters into covenant with Moses and Israel, and all the people, children included, are in view. In 2 Samuel 7, God's going to make a covenant with David. And even there, he's going to make a covenant with David and David's seed after him. Every time, whether you're talking Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, these covenants seem to have this person and their seed and their offspring. And so our Reformed, Pado-Baptist, infant-baptizing brothers and sisters see this and say, Don't you see? God doesn't just work one-on-one. -on -one. He includes families and households when he makes covenant. And they would be sure to say, and overarching all these covenants is what they call the covenant of grace. 
They would say, sure, as you read through Scripture, it's being progressively revealed in these various covenants, but all of them fall under the umbrella of what's called the covenant of grace. Now, you will not find that word in the Scriptures. It's a theological word. But don't be quick to throw out theological words because you will not find the word trinity in the scriptures. And yet we know that that theological word holds great meaning, is absolutely true. And so the Reformed Pain of Baptist would say, listen, there is a covenant of grace that God has been working graciously through his covenants from the beginning, from old covenant and new covenant. And then they would say, and when you get to the New Testament and when you get to Jesus and the new covenant, this is important, they would say you're not finding a second or different covenant, but you're finding the fulfillment of all the covenants that came before it, all of it falling under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. And they would say, do you not see that there is this wondrous continuity between the covenants? That's an important word. To understand their theology and, and why people baptize infants, you would have to see that there's this wondrous continuity between the covenants, and we would amen and agree. They would say, don't you see, people have always been saved by grace through faith. We'd say, yes. Abraham, was he saved in a different way than we are in the new covenant? No. Genesis 17 and Romans 4 all say Abraham was justified by faith and made right with God through faith. How are Christians made right with God? But justified by faith. It's the same exact way. Don't you see? There's this wondrous continuity. God called a people to himself, a covenant people, Israel. And in the new covenant, he calls a people to himself, the church. Don't you see? There's this wondrous continuity. And they would further say, and don't you see that in the new covenant, just like it has always been, offspring are included in the covenant. That just like in the old covenant, it's not just God makes a covenant with you, but that he makes a covenant with you and your offspring. To, to back this up, they would go to verses like Acts 2, verse 38. In Acts 2, let me just give you the background quickly. Jesus has died, resurrected, gone to heaven. He's promised that he would give the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him. And he comes through on his promise. In Acts 2, he sends the Holy Spirit. It fills the hearts of the believers. They're ready to do missions, just like Jesus commanded. Peter preaches, and when he does in 2 verse 38, this is what he says. Repent and be baptized, because all the crowd is asking him. A great crowd has gathered and said, what do we need to do be, to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, is for you and your children, and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And the Reformed Pano Baptist would say, don't you see? Even in the New Covenant, Peter doesn't just say this promise is for you. It's for you and your children and all who are far off whom the Lord our God would call. And they would argue, don't you see? If you were a Jewish parent who was standing in that assembly and for thousands of years from the beginning of the history of the world, your children were part of the covenant with you and now you came to faith in Jesus the Messiah, then wouldn't you be sitting there with holding little David and holding little Paul or Saul or whoever it is and you're, you're sort of wondering, what about these two? And then you hear Peter say, this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. And, don't, and they would argue, don't you think that these Jewish folks would breathe a sigh of relief and say, whew, our kids are in just like they've always been. 
or they would point to the household baptisms. And maybe you've heard this argument before, but I need you to hear this. When they argue for households being baptized, and you'll see this over and over again, a woman named Lydia comes to believe in Acts 16, and her household is baptized. A man named Crispus comes to salvation, and it says salvation came to his whole household. Paul says, I baptized the household of Stephanus. A man named Cornelius comes to faith, and his whole household comes to faith. The jailer in Acts 16 believes, and the whole household of the jailer is baptized. And they would look at all these and say, look, we're not arguing that there had to be a baby in every single home. What we're just saying is, don't you see the pattern of households coming to the Lord continues in the new covenant just like it does in the old covenant. There's other verses. For the sake of time, I won't go there. In 1 Corinthians 7, you'll talk about children being clean unto the Lord in verse 14. And all these verses, they would say, don't you see the offspring are in the new covenant just like they've always been. Okay, so how does baptism play into all of this? Stay with me. How does baptism play into all of this? Well, in the old covenant, you had a sign that was given to mark you off as a member of the covenant. And so circumcision was given to every male born a Jew, to mark that he was a member of the covenant, just like his family, just like all the other people around him. And here's what's important. This sign of circumcision not only marked you physically, but it had spiritual realities associated with it as well. The sign not only showed that you were Jew ethnically by birth, but the sign also had spiritual realities. You'll see this in Romans 4.11. You don't have to turn there. Just hear me. As Paul is speaking about Abraham, this is what he says. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Hear that again. He's saying that he got circumcision as a sign of the faith, of the righteousness he had by faith. Why is that important? What that means, and you got to stay with me to understand the argument, is that circumcision pointed to spiritual realities. It pointed to righteousness that comes by faith. It pointed to being right with God. Does that make sense? Abraham received this sign as a sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith. So his circumcision was pointing to spiritual realities, namely that he had become right with God through faith. It pointed to his regeneration. It pointed to spiritual realities that he belonged to God by faith. And here's the point. If circumcision points to spiritual realities of faith that make you right with God, well then that sign was applied to babies who had no faith. Circumcision, if it points to spiritual realities that this is justification by faith, then it was passed along to babies who did not have themselves faith. Here's why that's important. Because if our argument against paedobaptism, against infant baptism is, well, the sign of baptism is pointing to spiritual realities about regeneration and righteousness with God and faith and cleansing, and we say, how can you apply those signs to a baby that has no faith? Well, then that's exactly what circumcision did, and it was applied to babies. Circumcision pointed to the same sort of realities, and yet it was applied to infants. A sign of being right with God and justification by faith were given to infants who themselves possessed no faith. 
You see, there's a, a fairly tight logic and a coherent argument to this whole thing. And so that's why I want to say again, even if you disagree, we want to do so humbly and thoughtfully. Because this whole understanding of baptism is not without biblical basis. It's not without biblical defense. And so our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters would argue that even as circumcision was given to every child born to parents who were in the Old Covenant, so baptism should be given to every child within the New Covenant. Even as circumcision pointed to spiritual realities and was applied to infants who did not presently possess those realities, but marked them into the Old Covenant, so they would argue baptism should be given to infants of believers to mark them as members of the New Covenant, even if they do not presently have the spiritual realities to which it points. Okay, let me add this also because it's important. In the Old Covenant... Everyone would agree that circumcision did not guarantee that you were a believer. It did not guarantee you were saved. It did not guarantee that you would go on to be regenerated and born again. In fact, you were a member of the old covenant people of God. You were a member of Israel by virtue of your birth. This was attested to by your circumcision. And with it came all the privileges, promises, and benefits of being a part of the people of God, Israel. And then, if you grew up and went on to believe, you received all the covenant blessings that came with God's covenant. And if you went, uh, grew up and went on to unbelief, you received covenant curses. All the curses that are promised in Deuteronomy and other books that say, if you receive the sign of circumcision and you should be a covenant member and do not go on to believe, then rather than being a covenant keeper, you're a covenant breaker, rather than covenant blessings, covenant curses. And so the Reformed Pado baptist would argue, so it is in the New Covenant, that baptism does not guarantee your salvation. Baptism does not guarantee regeneration, that you'll be saved, that you'll believe in Jesus, that you'll go to heaven. But rather, just like in the Old Covenant, if, you're if your parents are members of the New Covenant, then you are a member of the New Covenant by virtue of your birth, attested to by your baptism, and you receive with it all the promises, privileges, and benefits of being a part of God's people, the church. And if you go on to repent and believe, you get covenant blessings, namely eternal life, forgiveness of sins, joy with Jesus. If you do not go on to repent and believe, you get covenant curses, namely hell, judgment, separation from God forever. They would say, don't you see that it's the same thing? Last thing on this whole position. So when a Reformed, here's what I want you to hear. When a Reformed paedo-baptist brings their baby, when that couple brings their baby to be baptized, provided they know what they're doing, which is often not the case, but provided they know what they're doing, here's what they're saying. They are saying, God, you have been a covenantly faithful God from the beginning. You've made covenants with your people and their children. God, you've promised that our children belong to you, that they are members of the new covenant just as we are. And so we apply the sign of the covenant just like our forefathers applied the sign of circumcision pledging to raise these children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that one day they might believe and be right with you, even as their baptism today signifies. Okay, two practical words 
as we think through that and say, despite all of that, here's why I lean towards believer baptism. Two practical words. One, even if you disagree, I hope that you will see that there is a biblical argument to this side of our family, brothers and sisters in the Lord, and even if you disagree, I pray you would do it humbly and thoughtfully. There is infant baptism, we reject altogether, we've covered that, but there is infant baptism within the family of God where we might disagree, but let's do so humbly and thoughtfully. And second, and this is a practical word for us in our particular context, unfortunately, many of those who practice infant baptism, who are baptized as babies or practice it, do not have this baptism at all in mind when it happens. The tragic thing, the unfortunate thing, is that this is brand new to, I would imagine, a large number of you. Even those who have practiced infant baptism, my guess is that many would never be able to articulate any of this. And so rather than baptism being this glorious thing, tied to words like covenant and grace and faith and God, it has become just tradition. It has become a rite of passage. It's become to please parents. It's become out of fear. It's become to guarantee children, God forbid, if something should happen to them, a seed in heaven. And so the tragic reality is that for many, this is not what your infant baptism was or was about. So then having said all this, let's think through this. If we've said all that we've said and we've seen the biblical argument for it, Again, let's ask, why then do we not bring our babies forward for baptism? Is it because we don't love them or value them or value their spirituality or value their journey of faith? Because their spiritual state is not important to us or because we don't see them as somehow loved by God and special to Him? No, of course not. In fact, I want to say we agree with our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters, that our children are set apart and holy to the Lord, that they are not unclean, but clean. We agree that the primary responsibility of nurturing these children in the faith and raising them up to receive the same covenant we are a part of is our responsibility. Every time we talk about babies, we command dads at Seven Mile Road that it is your responsibility before God to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That God will call you as dads and heads of your house to account for the souls of your sons and daughters. We agree. Every time we do a dedication, we say to fathers, you are heads of your household. You bear primary responsibility for the condition of your children and their souls. Together as moms and dads, we in this community long for and anticipate the day when our sons and daughters will believe and repent and love Jesus and receive the blessings of being a part of the new covenant, forgiveness of sins, love for Jesus, eternal life with him. If we agree with all of that, then here's again the question. Why then do we delay in giving our children the sign of baptism and the new covenant? If we have so much that we agree with, why do we delay? Why do we not bring forward our babies for baptism? And here's the answer. As clearly as I can say, it, it's because we see the new covenant community differently than our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters. It's because we see the new covenant community 
differently. I'm going to try and explain that, but again, I want to remind you, we're going to have Q&A after this, so ask your questions. There are many biblical reasons why people who lean towards believer baptism lean that way. Hear that. There are good, solid biblical reasons why people who lean towards believer baptism, credo baptism, lean that way. Some of these would include things like this. There is no explicit mention of infant baptism in all the scriptures. And we can talk through what the paedo-baptist response to that is, but that's important. There is no explicit reference or mention of infant baptism in all the scriptures. Likewise, every baptism recorded in the scriptures is preceded by repentance and faith. And so in the scriptures, whenever we see baptism, we see repentance and faith. Baptism is inseparably linked with discipleship. In Matthew 28, when Jesus is resurrected and going to heaven and giving his disciples the great commission, he says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching to obey all that I commanded you. And so there's this inseparable link between baptism and discipleship, that those who are disciples of Jesus are baptized. All of those are important. All of those are true. But when you get to the deepest level, it's the nature of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant where we part ways. Still in the same team, on the same family, but we differ and diverge. You see, where our Pado baptist brothers and sisters emphasize the continuity, remember that word, the continuity between the Old and the New Covenant, and we would say amen to all of that, we also want to emphasize the discontinuity between the Old and the New Covenant. Are there great continuities and similarities? Absolutely. But are there significant discontinuities? Absolutely. You see, where they would say to us, you are minimizing the continuity between the two covenants, we would say back, you are minimizing the discontinuities between the two covenants. You see, there is a newness to the new covenant, a betterness to the new covenant. I want you to open your Bibles to Hebrews 8. It's on page 1004 of the Black ESV Bibles. Everyone turn there, page 1005. Hebrews 8, we're going to read verse 8 to 16. I'm sorry. Hebrews 8, we're going to read verse 6 to 13. Here's what it says. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So right off the bat, here's what I want you to hear. The new covenant is a better covenant, enacted on better promises with a better mediator, namely Jesus himself. So the old covenant is good, the new covenant is better. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, so think through this for a second, verse 7 and 8, the first covenant was not without fault. It was, if it was faultless, we wouldn't need a second covenant. But it had fault. But here's what I want you to hear. The fault is not on God's part or his laws or his promises or his requirements in the old covenant. Where does he find the fault? Verse 8, he finds the fault with them. The problem with the first covenant is not the laws that God decreed or the requirements he made. The problem was with the people who could not keep the covenant. 
The problem was not on God's end. It was the problem was on the people's end. They couldn't keep God's requirements. They were at fault. But how does God remedy this in the newer and better covenant? Look at verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenants that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. There's their fault. So I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So here's how God's going to remedy this. If the problem with the first covenant was their fault, they could not keep it, God is going to remedy this because in the new covenant, he's going to not just give them the law, he's going to write the law on their hearts and in their minds and move them to keep it and obey it. He's going to give them power to keep his covenant, which they lacked in the first covenant. Ezekiel 36 talks about this idea of God giving them a, a new heart of flesh and moving them to keep his commands and keep his decrees. And who is God going to do that to? Who is God going to write this law on their heart and in their minds? Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Who is God going to write this law on their hearts and in their minds? All the members of the new covenant. And who are the members of the new covenant? Verse 12, the ones that he will be merciful towards and remember their sins towards. And who will he be merciful towards and remember their sins no more? All the members of the new covenant. I want you to hear that again. Who are the members of the new covenant? All the ones whom God will remember their sins and iniquities no more and write the law on their hearts. And who are those people? All the members of the new covenant. He says, you will not anymore in the new covenant have to go and tell your neighbor, believe the Lord, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You see, here's, here's the difference. Here's the discontinuity. In the old covenant... You had a mixed community of people who knew the Lord and didn't know the Lord, but they were all ethnically Jewish. In the new covenant, you have a better community. And all those who are in the new covenant are truly believers who know the Lord, are truly people whom God has been gracious to and written the law on their hearts and in their minds and given them a new mind and a new heart and forgiven their iniquity and pardoned their sin. There's a discontinuity. Let me make it clear. Romans 9. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read for us verse 6 through 8. Romans 9. Here's what it says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. I'm going to read that again. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. 
You see, here's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Are there continuities? Yes. Is there significant discontinuity? Yes. And here's the difference. In the Old Covenant, you had a mixed community of believers and unbelievers, and they all received the sign of the covenant. You had regenerate, born-again people who were circumcised, and you had unregenerate, condemned people who were circumcised. And yet Paul here says, don't you see, not all who were children of Abraham were true children of Abraham. Not all his offspring were his true offspring because it's not the children of the flesh, but children of promise, children who've been born again, who are truly sons and daughters of Abraham. See, you were born into Israel, but into true Israel, you had to be reborn. You were ethnically a part of Israel, but to be a true member of God's covenant community, you had to be spiritually reborn. And so Paul says, it's not the children of flesh who are true covenant members, it's the children of promise. And so we, we would say, the Paedo-Baptists are right, offspring are included in the new covenant, but it is not physical offspring, it's spiritual offspring. It's not by parents' procreation, it's by God's regeneration and recreation that you are becoming a member of the new covenant. Here's what I'm trying to say. My best understanding of the scriptures is that we don't apply the sign of the new covenant to infants because you do not become a member of the new covenant by birth, but by new birth. Not by procreation, but recreation in Christ through the Spirit. And so we maintain that physical offspring is not those who receive the sign of the covenant, but spiritual offspring who have truly become children of God. Let me read you one more verse. John verse 1 verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who became the children of God? Not those who were born of blood, nor the will of man, nor of flesh, but those who were born of God. In the Old Covenant, all you had to do to be a part of God's people was be born. In the New Covenant, to be a part of God's people means that you need to be born again, reborn. In the Old Covenant, it was procreation. In the New Covenant, it's recreation. In the Old Covenant, it's generation through your parents. In the New Covenant, it's regeneration through the Holy Spirit. Israel was an ethnic, national, temporal reality. But the church is a permanent, multi-ethnic, international, global reality into which you are not born, but reborn. And so the sign of the, the New Covenant is delayed for our kids until they repent and believe and become members of the new covenant by faith. Okay, let me conclude. I want to thank you for being patient and to wade with me through those things. I want to encourage you, Paul says in Acts, that he preached to a bunch called the Bereans. And it says that the Bereans were more noble than the, all the others because they went back and searched the word to make sure it was true. I want to encourage you with the same. 
If the Apostle Paul preached and people had to go back to their Bibles to make sure everything he said was true, then surely when Ajay says something, you need to go back to the Scriptures and study and think through if these things are true. So I would leave you with that. So here's what I want to conclude by saying. And again, we'll have Q&A where I will dodge most of your questions. Is there merit to the Pado-Baptist, our brothers and sisters, and to their argument and to their position? Yes. And do we have much in common with them? Absolutely. We all agree that baptism is important. And if someone who is an adult and, a, and an unbeliever who's never known Jesus comes to faith, then the Presbyterian and the Credo-Baptist and the Pado-Baptist, they join hands and say, let's baptize them and do so together. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ as an adult and, and you've never known him and, and now suddenly the Spirit regenerates you and makes you come alive and a believer, then we join hands and say, let's baptize you. We'd all be on the same page about that. And so that's the first question and the most important question. The first question to ask is not, have you been born into a church? It's, have you been reborn into God's community? Not have you been born to Christian parents, but have you been born again to become a Christian yourself? Has the Spirit made you born? Not just do you have physical breath, but does your soul have breath given by the Spirit? So start there. If any of you are hearing me, before you wade through the different thoughts, think through that first and most primary question. Have you been born again by the Spirit into the new covenant? We have much we agree on. And then when it comes to children, I want you to hear this too. Even there, we have much in common. Only the order is different. All the ingredients are the same. It's just the order is different. So our Reformed Presbyterian and other churches brethren, they baptize their babies and then disciple them and move them towards conversion, where upon a profession of faith, they bring them to the Lord's table so that they can go on forever in their sanctification, becoming like Jesus. We do all the same things, just in a different order. And so for us, when they're born, we disciple them and disciple them towards a confession of faith and conversion. And upon their profession, we baptize them and then bring them to the Lord's table. And then they on go in their sanctification, becoming more like Jesus forever. It's all the same things in different order for different reasons. So do we have differences? Yes. But if we keep Jesus central, we hold much in common. And it's to those wonderful commonalities that we'll give our attention next week. Let's pray.